Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the strangest symptoms that many people develop when they get COVID-19 is losing their sense of smell. For a while, scientists didn't know what was causing this, but now they know why it happens, and there is some good news to it. It's only temporary. SARS-CoV-2 attacks the cells that support smell-detecting neurons, and because they don't actually attack the neurons themselves, people usually recover after a few weeks. For more on why you lose your sense of smell, we'll speak to Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today. So a group of scientists based at Harvard, though there were actually international people involved in this, had been trying to figure out what the SARS-CoV-2 virus was specifically doing to the cells that allow us to smell. And it had been originally thought that maybe there was some sort of inflammation right around the olfactory sensory neurons, and that was causing it. Then later, it was thought that perhaps the virus actually infected these neurons themselves and damaged or destroyed them, and that's why people were losing their smell. But last week, they published a paper in which they were able to show that, in fact, what's happening is that the virus doesn't attack the olfactory sensory neurons themselves, but it attacks the cells that support them. And that's actually really good news because those cells, the cells that support our smell neurons, can regenerate. And so you don't lose your sense of smell forever. You just lose it for a while as they regenerate. And that actually turns out to be really important because you might not think of it, but there are some diseases that connect permanently damage a person's sense of smell, as can certain head injuries. And it's a huge thing for people. If you lose your sense of smell, you lose a lot of your sense of taste. It can lead to weight problems. It can lead to depression. So it was good news that these will grow back. And now we actually have a sense of what's happening. I think even in that research, they pointed to other coronaviruses. And as you mentioned, other things where people lose their sense of smell, In some of those instances, that can take months to regain their sense of smell. And luckily with this, they say over the course of several weeks, you'll probably get it back. I actually had a colleague at work who had COVID-19, lost his sense of smell. And it was a few weeks later, we asked him, how are you feeling with the smell and all? He's like, oh, it's kind of coming back. He's like, things smell a little like onions, maybe. Like, So (laughs) he, he was still all messed up from it, but at least it was kind of coming back. You know, health records indicate that COVID-19 patients are 27 more times likely to have smell loss as opposed to having fever, cough, or other respiratory difficulty. They're saying that the sense of smell is probably a better indicator or at least an earlier indicator than some of those other symptoms. I think that was a really telling point, or it is a really telling point, and it reminds us how new this virus is and how little that we know about it and how much we've learned in seven or eight short months. I mean, originally... I remember I helped write the story where like, oh, you know, some people get COVID may potentially lose their sense of smell. Now it actually turns out it's a better predictor than fever or cough. So scientists all over the world are working hard to gather data so that we understand the natural course of this. And we still probably don't because it's only been seven months that, you know, maybe things happen a year or two out. We don't know yet. 
they're saying it's a, a very good thing that it actually doesn't directly infect the neurons, but it's kind of confirming other things that it continues to be this sort of vascular disease affecting blood vessels more so than this respiratory disease. Correct. And there was interesting data out this week that there are long-term heart issues that can be caused by the virus, for example, which might not be the first thing you would think of. Then it turns out you're going to have heart issues a year later. Well, in the meantime, I mean, it's good news if you do get coronavirus and you lose your sense of smell, you know you'll get it back at least. Elizabeth Weiss, National Correspondent at USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. Take care. Also this week, we covered a weird science story. Scientists in Hungary accidentally created a new species of fish called a sturtlefish. It is a hybrid of the Russian sturgeon and American paddlefish. Approximately 100 sturtlefish remain alive today, but while they will be cared for, there are no plans to breed more. For more on the short lifespan of these fish and how they came to be, we'll speak to Daisy Hernandez, reporter at Popular Mechanics. One of the most interesting things about this hybridization between the sturgeon and the American paddlefish is that it was completely accidental. Like you said, the scientists were not actively trying to create a hybrid of these fish. And one of the reasons that they were working in the lab to create more Russian sturgeon was because those fish, not entirely, but almost single-handedly support the caviar industry. So overfishing has caused a lot of problems, especially because roe, the Russian sturgeon roe is very valuable. So this was a way for scientists to try to create more Russian sturgeon in a lab. And the way they tried to do it was via this gnarly process called gynogenesis. And gynogenesis is super interesting. So it's a type of parthenogenesis in which reproduction occurs, but the sperm doesn't fertilize the egg. So what happens is you need sperm to activate the egg to begin embryo development, but the sperm doesn't pass down any paternal DNA. So essentially what you end up with is an offspring that has 100% maternal DNA and is essentially a clone of the mother. I mean, that in and of itself is incredible and super fascinating. It's a crazy process from what I was reading. So what happened was they were using the sperm from the American paddlefish to induce the process in the Russian sturgeon. But by Mm -hmm. accident, they didn't know it was going to happen. They thought that these two fish were so different that the hybridization could never occur. But the sperm ended up fertilizing the egg. You know, as they say, nature finds a way. And then they ended up having all these hundreds of fish be born. Yes. And, yeah, so and, just totally unbe- like almost unbelievable, you know, something out of like a sci-fi story. It's almost too weird to be true, but as they say, truth is stranger than right. fiction oftentimes. And what did they look like? Because it ran the gamut also. Some of them resembled the sturgeon more. Some resembled kind of both of them. They look like a true hybrid. They all right, look different. Right, right. So again, like just mind-blowing. So some of the offspring, some of these hybrids, the sturtlefish as they're called, Some of them appear very sturgeon-like, and some of them are very paddlefish-like. So some of them have not the full, I don't know if people are familiar, but American paddlefish have that. They're known for their paddle-like snout. It extends pretty far out, and it looks just like a paddle, like an oar maybe that you might use for canoeing. So some of the fish have that paddlefish snout. It's not as long as a purebred American paddlefish, but some of them have the more pointed sturgeon snout with the little whiskers that come down the bottom. And all of them had those bony protrusions along their spine on the dorsal side. Interestingly, too, so the paddlefish, 
feeds on zooplankton, so just like whatever little particles kind of manages to filter feed on through the teeth, kind of like baleen whales. So interestingly, the hybrids are all carnivores like the sturgeon. Not all of them are a 50-50 split in appearance. Some of them, like I said, they look a lot like sturgeon. Some of them are closer to 50-50 between both fish, and some of them look a lot more like the American paddlefish. As you mentioned, this is just a crazy science story, and I'm looking at some of the pictures, and they do all look kind of different. But, yeah. they, but they have those similarities. But here's the sad part about it. Like with other of these man-made hybrids, things like the ligers or mules or whatever, they think that they can't reproduce on their own. So they're not worth it. As you mentioned, they were doing this whole thing to get more caviar so they can mm-hmm. uh, kind of repopulate the Russian sturgeon population. So there's only about 100 of these sturtle fish left, and they have no plan to reproduce these again. So this species, this man-made species that came up in a flash is going to be going away pretty soon. Yeah, so we don't know. There's no definitive lifespan for these guys, for the hybrids. And I guess fortunately for native species, they won't be released into the water because we're not sure how they would interact, if it would be a threat to other fish. So this is kind of like, I mean, it is a once in a lifetime thing where this entirely new species that happened by accident, nobody was expecting, nobody was trying for, is here for a short time and it's going to be gone. And again, we don't know if they're going to, if they'll endure for a year, if they'll be around for a few years, if it'll be a couple of months. Yeah, such an interesting story. Daisy Hernandez, reporter at Popular Mechanics. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, for this week, the people at Wired have a brand new podcast called Get Wired, and it takes a look into an app called Citizen, the app that asks you to report on the crime next door. Millions of users have logged on to the app to view, report, and comment on local incidents in their communities. The key thing is, if someone is close enough to the action, you can live stream what's going on. For more on how the Citizen app got its start and how it looks to grow, we'll speak to Boone Ashworth contributor to Wired. So Citizen is a location-based, essentially emergency notification app. So they monitor incoming emergency calls through police, fire, or other emergency scanners. And then they use your location of your device to know when you're near an incident in your city. And then it alerts you and lets you know there's something like an assault two blocks away or something like that. And then it also allows users who are close enough to an incident the option to film the scene or post comments to give updates on what's going on on the ground. A lot of people compare these sometimes to the Ring app or your next door app, basically, you know, reporting issues in the community. But this it's on a different level where people can actually film live stream what's going on if they're close enough. And this is how a lot of people are kind of getting turned on to it. People are really drawn to this. There is an interactive aspect of it for sure. And I, I think that's one of the big draws of Citizen as opposed to something like Nextdoor or Ring is that it's not limited to a specific location. It goes with you wherever you're carrying your phone. So tell us a little bit more about your look into this. How did this app get started Because I know I had kind of a rocky start. It was actually positioned as something a little bit differently. I think it was called Vigilante when it first came out. And that quickly got shut down. And then they had to rebrand themselves into this new Citizen app. That was in October of 2016. And they launched as Vigilante in New York City. Shut down within 48 hours because there was a public outcry. You know, the app and the name seemed like it was encouraging people to go to scenes and interfere with them. Kind of would be crime fighters. 
So the app rebranded as Citizen and launched in March of 2017 in New York City. And it's sort of slowly spread to, I believe, 19 cities across the United States now. I first got into Citizen when it came to San Francisco, which was one of the very early cities that Citizen was in. And I just downloaded the app on my phone and I've kind of just monitored it passively ever since and been increasingly interested in sort of the bizarre and often scary things that pop up on there. Like what? Give us a few examples of something that uh, struck you at least. Oh, sure. Um, it just a couple days ago, this wasn't particularly scary, but just a couple days ago, I got a notification that said a group of nuns fighting with people in the street. <laughs> There's been other ones where people are wielding swords in the Mission District of San Francisco. There's been some that have been building fires. There have been times that I, I found out that there was an apartment complex near where I live that was on fire. And I was poked my head out the window and saw smoke and heard sirens. And it was kind of nice to have the Citizen app to tell me when those things are happening, whether they're amusing or genuinely concerning. You came across different people who are kind of like prolific posters. They are constantly posting. And one of them was a 12-year-old boy named Anthony G. You actually went down to his house to see what his operation was like. And that's what struck me right there. He's 12 years old and he's rushing to yeah. different things to post it. He it re immediately reminded me while I was reading this and listening to your podcast, it, it immediately reminded me of Jake Gyllenhaal in the movie Nightcrawler, you know, working as a stranger, oh, yeah. like rushing to things. But he's 12 years old. So who takes him to these things? His mom is driving him there. Sometimes if it's close enough, he'll ride his bike or he'll have his grandparents or his dad will take him. He prefers it when his mom takes him because she's very supportive of his passion and she'll jump in the car at a moment's notice and take him to a gas leak or a building fire or police responding to a certain scene. I think it's very tempting to equate it to Nightcrawler. That movie is very disturbing and the guy's obviously a sociopath. Right. <laughs> I think in Anthony's case, it's very different. He's a 12 year old kid and he is just really into the action. He likes the lights. He likes the sirens. He especially loves it when there's a hazmat response because those vehicles, he says, are the coolest. So it's just a matter of going out there and seeing what's going on. He and his mom deliberately avoid, you know, the really terrible incidents. Like if there's really disturbing ones, they've come across suicides or the aftermaths of suicides before. And if there's bodies on the street, his mom will say, Anthony, don't look, and he'll avert his eyes and not film the scene. So they're not entirely adrenaline junkies or accident junkies, I guess. It's more of him wanting to go out and explore and see the excitement of these things that are happening, I suppose. And he's a great reporter, actually. I've heard a couple of clips that you played on your podcast, <laughs> and really he has his taglines, he has his opening intros, he's very descriptive. And this is kind of that other piece, you know, the Citizen app needs content and they need content providers. And this is exactly what he was doing for his own entertainment. But he was doing a great job and he kind of became a little famous on the app, too. People were clamoring to hear more from him, at least. Citizen recently introduced a feature that allows people to connect as friends and follow each other. So Anthony has a number of followers who get alerted whenever his videos go up. He reported on a lot of incidents in the area where he lived and people who monitored the app got to recognize him. And actually, that's how I discovered Anthony is I an incident popped up onto my feed that was nearby. And I started reading the comments and everybody was talking about Anthony G. Everyone was saying Anthony G's on the scene. We know it's going to be good. Anthony G's here. Oh, we love you. Like, it was just, you know, 
like fans clamoring on, you know, YouTube comments or any, something like that. And so then I, I went to his profile and found that at the time he had recorded 300 videos or so. And this was back in December or January. So he's recorded almost twice that since then. And so, okay, so we have, uh, you know, a mix of things happening on this app. Tell us about what the founders of the app say, the, the company, what is their ultimate goal with this? I know they talk about giving people peace of mind or, or giving them updates on safety in their communities. But, you know, it's also all about money. People don't usually just make an app just for the good <laughs> of it. You know, the ultimate goal is usually to make money. I know that they haven't made any money on this just yet, but they're looking at monetizing this very soon. So the original goal of the app, according to the founders, was to open up the 911 system. They talk about that a lot. The idea is that there's a lot of coded messages that go through police scanners that people don't normally have access to. Hobbyists have monitored this stuff for years, but the general population, it's not translated in a way that makes sense. So Citizen sees itself as essentially a translation service or a transparency service for taking this coded information and telling people what's going on and then matching it to their location so that they know what's happening. They haven't made any money as far as how you monetize that product. I mean, there's a lot of theories out there. I think people have expressed concern about them. You know, the fact that they are a app that tracks your location. Could they be collecting data or use, you know, wanting to sell that? They have told me that that is not in their monetization plans at all. They have no interest in selling data. They've had people come to them asking for it and they've refused. Last year, Citizen's head of product likened a sort of expansion or a potential monetization of the product to a global safety network. Or he said something about the idea of a universal safety signal. So something that people could use to signal others and call for help. Earlier this year, Citizen reintroduced a feature that allows users to make their own incidents. Before, it was just citizen employees that would interpret the information that would come through scanners and then put it out there for users to see. Now users are able to put an alert out there themselves. It's then vetted by citizen employees, but they're sort of testing the waters of a service that would allow people to call people to your own personal aid. I think if you look at citizens, for lack of a better term, competitors, something like the Life360 app, which is another location-based app that's used primarily for families to keep track of each other, they recently introduced an SOS button, a safety feature that allows them to, you know, alert people of their exact location and call for help. A paid tier of that plan actually contacts emergency dispatchers who will then respond like a an alarm company would, like a Brinks home security system would, but for an individual person. As far as how they make money off of that, I mean, that you know, you could launch a subscription tier like Life360 has done or just kind of expand from there. And Citizen hasn't made any specific announcements about what sort of features they're going, going to roll out. But Andrew Frame, the Citizen CEO, did tell me that 2020 is the year that they plan to monetize. So we will see. Boone Ashworth, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.